The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hurricane Harvey may hit the U.S. economy by as much as $190 billion, with more financial pain on the way if Hurricane Irma ravages Florida over the weekend. And we take a look at global water risks from floods to drought. Tackling these may require $12 trillion in financing. These are the issues we'll be tackling later in this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry, and my co-host is Jennifer Sabre. Hi, Jen. Hey, Anthony. So Hurricane Harvey has devastated large swaths of Texas. At last count, this megastorm is responsible for more than 60 deaths. If Hurricane Katrina is any guide, the Lone Star State citizens face years of rebuilding and fighting for the funds to do so. Currently, the total economic impact is estimated to be just shy of $200 billion, the worst damage wrought by a natural disaster on American soil. Joining us from our Dallas office to discuss Harvey and how to pay for the recovery is Lauren Silva Laughlin. Hello, Lauren. Hello, how are you? Good. How are you doing? Dry, I hope. <laughs> we were fine in Dallas here. Yeah. Um, so let's let's kind of take us through this here. Um, Houston uh, was just devastated, and you know, let's let's kind of set up the situation about Texas. I mean, Texas is a, I mean, it's called the Lone Star State for a reason. It's it's very independent. It's it prides itself on, um, you know, it's. Texas pride and not relying on the federal government. Um, kind of set this up. You're in Dallas. What is uh, it like? Well, you know, Dallas, we have lots of diversity and people from both sides of the political spectrum. But what they can seem to sort of come together on um, is the fact that they like Texas to be financially independent. Um, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, has bragged before that you know, about the number of times he sued the federal government um, as attorney general. So um, the whole concept of seceding and Texas being independent is something that's kind of bred in people who've lived here for generations. And Texans take great pride in that. So, Lauren, this is where you tell us that um, Texas has a plan to pay for all the flood damage itself. Not even close. <laughs> in fact, they have money that's sitting in what they call a rainy day fund. Every state has one, literally a rainy day fund. Um, and Governor Abbott is not calling a special a special session to um, to try to access those funds. He's been very explicit about the funds that the state is going to need from the federal government. In fact, um, legislators right now are working on on passing some some amount of those funds down to Texas. So, Lauren, just to kind of emphasize this, there are a couple things that um, make Texas somewhat unique, I think, in the United States. One is that um, it doesn't have state income tax, right? So it's kind of one of these places where you don't have to pay state income taxes, which is a great advantage, I think, to a lot of people. That's either as a person or a company, right? That's yeah, right. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, also, they offer uh, the state offers uh, businesses huge tax breaks to come and relocate. I know that there have been many businesses in the Northeast and, and throughout the United States that have relocated to uh, Dallas and other cities within, within the state because, you know, they get such uh, great benefits because they don't have to pay a lot of taxes. So, and also, as, as you are writing about, um, there's a lot of money. There are, there's a lot of billionaires and millionaires and um, people that live in the state. Yeah, they do because there, as you point out, many favorable um, financial aspects to it. And it's just part of the culture. Um, you know, the 
the citizens here would rather starve public resources than pay higher taxes, period. Um, and that matters if you're a billionaire, right? And you don't have to pay any personal income tax. Um, so we have more than 50 billionaires on the Forbes rich list here in Texas. Um, and they've benefited from, you know, this sort of lean government concept that um, is here in the state. So let's let's put this in context then. So, and Greg Abbott has said, very in the last past couple of days, he expects the bill to be 180, 190 billion dollars, and he expects 125 billion of that to come from the federal government, and says that with no shame whatsoever, and also isn't recalling the the state legislature as you said, which isn't due to return to um, to to, um, to vote on anything until 2019. Is that right? Yes. That's right. So, so here we have this 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 super anti-government uh, uh, state that is now basically going cap in hand to the federal government. But connect connect these dots for us. I mean, I don't think the hypocrisy is lost on a lot of people. Chris Christie has been very vocal about um, his anger towards some of the Texan politicians who voted against relief to New Jersey after Hurricane Sandy. There really is no way to connect the dots. Um, it's just one of those things that, you know, Texas um, is an extreme, it's, it's an extremely large state. It has, you know, GDP that would rank it somewhere in like the top 10 um, if it were a country. It has every reason to be able to fend for itself. It has the politics um, to be able to fend for itself. But when a disaster hits, you know, you start to see the value, the financial value of having a federal government with very deep pockets. And that's just just how it goes. I mean, compare, compare this um, for us to a, to a couple of other instances. I think the big one everyone looks at is Hurricane Katrina, which hit in 2005. And everyone probably remembers seeing you know, the images of, of New Orleans um, swamped underwater, just as we now see in Houston, the fourth largest city in the country underwater. The two, the, the, the two states are in the line of fire a lot of the time for a lot of the hurricanes that hit, especially Louisiana. Um, but the finances of the two states are different. So if you're Louisiana, I, I get the impression you basically don't have a great deal of choice, whereas Texas does. I mean, wh- why is that? What, what's the difference between the two states, uh, financially speaking? Um, Texas has more of a choice. I'm not sure even if even if it wanted to, it could pay for all of this itself. But Texas is larger. It's more populated. Um, the migration, if you look at the migration patterns to the state in the last couple of years, all the large cities have been getting people from other cities throughout the country. And one of the reasons is because of the, um, the sort of corporate structure that we have here that's favorable to businesses relocating. So we have people, we have businesses, we have very wealthy people, and we have, um, a government that, you know, has been very fiscally responsible, um, Louisiana, you know, is smaller, um, and its residents are not as wealthy. Um, and so it's just, it's really comparing apples and oranges. Of course, you know, storms don't discriminate based on state. So the damage to Louisiana was similar, um, by many estimates to the damage caused by Harvey. And it's just a matter of one state being able to afford more than another. I think Louisiana at the time had a, a state budget of what, 17 or 18 billion compared to, and what's Texas at for the current year, 130 billion? So again, I think, as you said, it's, it's, it's not as if anyone's particularly expecting Texas suddenly to stump up every single dollar needed. But you know, when you have a 120, 150 billion dollar hit and you, earn, uh, you only have a 20 billion dollar budget, there's not much you can do but go cap in hand to the federal government. That's right. And, um, and you know, Sandy was in a similar situation as well. Um, the funny thing about the finances as, as these 
um, numbers start rolling in is you start to see sort of damage of these um, hurricanes all over the map. And it's somewhat interesting to to watch what people are estimating and saying the damage will be a Harvey. You know, we have these estimates coming from Abbott um, and he's used all sorts of kind of benchmarks, I guess. And some of them are, are somewhat accurate. Some of them are very, very accurate. Some of them are just guesses. But um, as we see these conversations between politicians playing out, we're going to see varying numbers from the damage that happened in Katrina and Sandy and what's happening here in Harvey. But there's there's no one out there saying, um, come on, guys, if we can, we look at Katrina, we look at Sandy, the states that were affected got 60, 70, 80 percent of the fun, of, of the of the money to, to recover from the state government. For, sorry, from the federal government. Surely we as proud Texans should be trying to reduce that number. The bragging rights alone would be great, wouldn't they? Well, you know, Michael Dell did did start this momentum um, to try to get Texans to contribute. And he contributed thirty six million dollars of his own money. And that's very generous. But he's on the Forbes rich list as being worth over $20 billion. Um, so if you look at it relative to the net worth, you know, I mean, that net worth goes a lot of different places, obviously, but it's, it's not a very high percentage. So even if all the billionaires in Texas coughed up a bunch of money, it still wouldn't be nearly enough. Yeah, but it would be it would be symbolic, right? It would be it would be symbolic. And, you know, it might put some pressure on the state government here to, um, you know, put their money where their mouth is, for lack of a better way of saying it. So, Lauren, you know, Texas is one of the fastest growing, uh, most populous states uh, in, in the union. Um, what, what's the infrastructure there like? Has it, has it kept up with the growth of, um, of the cities and, you know, people coming into the state? Uh, it depends who you ask. And Houston is a great example. Um, Houston doesn't have any zoning laws. And so some people have started saying anecdotally, just people I know and, and speak to who have family there or live there themselves, that part of the problem with Harvey is that there's been no real restrictions on building in the city. Um, and that's causing major problems in Houston for traffic. In Dallas, we have some of the same problems. We have more zoning laws here, but we have... Um, we have major problems with traffic as well. So if you just think about the road infrastructure, no, the schools cannot handle people. And then certainly if you broaden that out to look at the infrastructure that has to do with um, oil and gas pipelines, for example, um, there probably is going to be a lot of evaluating the damage to that infrastructure following Harvey as a result of the growth that's that's come here. I think there's there's also a water infrastructure piece to that as well, right? So if you think about it, if you're, if you're a fast-growing state like Texas, you're trying to attract businesses, you're trying to attract people, well, you need to have the infrastructure put in place. And I think that no one's going to say, turn around and say that you could have had enough drainage and stormwater systems in place to stop the flooding being as bad as it was. I mean, well, you could probably stop being as bad, but you couldn't have stopped it completely. But New Orleans is a great case in point, right? So if you go back to, to 2005, where one of the biggest problems is there is that they have these old pumps 27, 28 big pumps that can only reduce water by like an inch for the first hour of rain, then half an inch of, of, of rainwater afterwards. And on that, after that, you're just relying on the levees and other systems not to break. And they broke. And it took, it's taken them basically 10 or 12 years to try and come up with new plans, but more importantly, get the financing to be able to go in and say, right, we need to have better ways of managing the stormwater here because we're going to get hit again, as it did a month ago. In fact, the, the head of the, the Sewerage and, uh, and Water Commission had to resign after basically being told and then claiming on TV and in the papers that all the pumps are working, and they weren't. So you know, I think Houston is in a similar, similar situation where it, it's, it's um, infrastructure to cope with floods, maybe not this kind of flood, but floods in general, hasn't kept pace with change simply because the city 
and the state wants to expand so quickly and hasn't thought about um, some of the implications of that. The concept of flooding, though, is interesting because Houston had something like three 100-year floods in the last 10 years. And so there's two questions, I think. One is, does the city is the city not appropriately recognizing what the flooding is? And or are the, you know, climate change, is climate change affecting flooding in the city such that the city should be thinking about it differently? And I wonder if that's applicable other places as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you, I think let, let's not forget the other huge flood that was happening uh, during um, Hurricane Harvey, which is down in Southeast Asia, where you know, 40 million people were affected, 1,200 people, I think, died um, and didn't get as much play, in part because in the Indian subcontinent, they're much more used to flooding. And they deal with it every day. I think in this instance, though, floods have become bigger. They're happening at different times to what the, when the normal monsoons used to happen. I think some cities were getting 15 to 30 percent of the annual rainfall in one day um, during uh, the floods in Southeast Asia, which is somewhat comparable, I think, to Hurricane Harvey, where you saw, I mean, I forget the numbers, but the amount of rainfall was, was, was astounding in just several hours. So, uh, Anthony, you spent much of last week in Stockholm uh, at the World Water Week, and uh, as Harvey was... Yep basically building up steam as a storm. I mean, what did that did that come figure into the conversations about climate change? I mean, what what was, you know, what was it like there? I mean, it seemed like perfect timing to discuss this. I mean, that that and the and the Indian subcontinent floods were I mean, it's an awful thing to say, were almost the perfect backdrop drop to what the conference was trying to achieve. They, this is this is organized every year by the the um, Swedish in, uh, International Water Institute. It tries to bring together everyone who has anything to do with water, so municipalities to some extent, but also um, you've got a lot of people from the UN there. You've got a lot of companies coming, and we can talk about that in a minute. Investors are beginning to turn up, um, although not as much as, as they should, given the needs um, for the infrastructure long term around the world. Um, and look, the, the floods, normally when you talk about, um, go to these conferences and you talk about water issues, you're talking about scarcity. Because you think, you know, the, the world is facing, what, a one-third increase in population by 2050. So water needs, food needs, everything will increase along with that. And do we have enough water or enough water in the right places to cope with that? But the floods were a great reminder, um, if anyone there really needed it. I think, you know, people there have basically drunk the Kool-Aid and you know, know that climate change is an issue, know that things need to change. But it was a great reminder uh, that a lot more things need doing than just simply say, as the theme of the conference was, sorting out um, wastewater or um, getting more investors and companies to change what they're doing. This is a great big colossal event reminding us that climate change, um, or two events, should I say, that climate change uh, is one of the biggest factors that will um, influence how we think about everything from flooding uh, to droughts in the next 10, 15 years. I mean, the thing that baffles me, and I'm wondering if you talked about this at the conference, is that it seems like it's a Mother Nature's kind of dirty trick to um, dump a bunch of water in one place and then, you know, have water scarcity someplace else. Are there private sector solutions to kind of transferring water or are the conversations now just about getting clean water? Well, there are there are some on transferring water, but we're talking about relatively small distances. So actually one 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 great example is in, in, in Texas, actually, in San Antonio, which has done a very good job over the last 10 years of trying to improve it, everything from stormwater to recycling water uh, to storing water. Uh, but it still hasn't got enough. So what it's done is come up with two different projects, one of which is this huge uh, pipeline to pipe in water from about 140 miles away. And the other one is to um, buy water from a desalination plant clo- uh, down on the coast. And as a result, I mean, this is one of the biggest issues that a lot of municipalities here and around the world have is how do you then charge for that? Because 
Now, if you're piping water in from 140 miles away, it's going to cost money, and desalination is still exceptionally expensive. So you've got to come up with some way of doing that and not... Um, and not charging people too much money on their rates. At the same time, you know, you've got to do it in a way that is meant to be environmentally friendly. So what you really want to rely on really is, is, is gravity as much as possible to transfer the water. If you start, I, mean, I remember having these discussions with people almost as a joke after the huge snowstorms dumped all that snow on Boston while, while California was in drought two or three years ago. And you, know, you could theoretically pipe water across the United States. Um, all the way over, but you would spend a lot of money doing it, It'd take a long time to do it, uh, as in to build everything. And also, the pumps you would need would probably um, make this the climate situation even worse in certain areas. So, you really your your, your water transfer really re- is is an is more of a sort of in basin or between two very close basins, if you're allowed to. And even then, you're not always allowed to. So the, the Great Lakes, you're not allowed to take water out of the catchment area, for example. So there's not a great deal you can do. So that, let's go back to that $12 trillion in financing that you said is going to uh, be required, you know, just to basically uh, tackle some of these yeah. global water risks. I mean, that just seems like a, just an immense number to wrap your head around or my yeah. head around. Um, so, I mean, what does that mean? I, is Are you talking about, like, you know, what you were saying in San Antonio going, you know, piping water from the coast up, you yeah. know, to well, it's, the cities. It's about in... infrastructure in, in many, in, in virtually all of its forms. So you think it could be desalination, although, again, I think that should be the last resort for most countries as it remains expensive and also um, it requires a lot of energy. And if you're not using solar panels, then you're contributing even more problems to the, to the environment. Um, but, you know, desalination, um, just basic pipes infrastructure. I mean, God knows the, the residents of Flint in America know full well how bad the pipes have gotten. Um, a lot of pipes in this country are 80, 100 years old and past their sell-by date. Um, stormwater, um, wastewater is another big thing. And that was the main theme of the conference actually last year, last week, which was that um, you know more than 80% of wastewater isn't treated and goes straight back um, into, into various water systems, which is both um, environmentally a hazard. In fact, I think one of the studies that came out from the World, water, World Resources Institute showed that some emerging market countries in Asia have a two to four percentage point um, impact on their um, GDP each year because of people being ill or dying because of untreated wastewater. Um, but the, the twelve trillion dollar figure, just a step back a bit um, from from the individual examples, is uh, I mean I got that from the high level panel on water, which is the United Nations high level panel, which is in existence for two years to try and work out what to do about. Um, SDG 6, which is the Sustainable Development Goal 6 of the 17 that were adopted two years ago in the run-up to the Paris Accords. Um, And they've got this number from 2013 to 2030, $12 trillion needs spending on infrastructure so that the SDG 6 can be hit and help with all the other uh, climate-related and sustainable development-related goals to make sure that there is proper water and enough water for people and for sustainable development in general. And that is a really big task. Okay, well, let's leave it at that. Anthony, thank you very much for that. And Lauren, thanks uh, for dialing in and and telling us about uh, Texas. All right, thank you. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guest, Lauren Silva-Laughlin, as well as our producers, Freddie Joyner, Ryan Warner, and Andrew D'Antonio. Thanks to you, too, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes. Please do share your opinions about our show. And join us again next week for another edition. Thank you.